This is day six of the 2017 Idaho Bible School. Our third period teacher is Brother Bill Link. His general topic is Portraits of the Master. Today's topic is Having Been with Jesus. Brother Bill. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Brother Jeff's going to give me a hard time if I get weepy. I'm liable to. It's been an awful good week being with you all. <laughs> Two thumbs up, Brad. It's been really good, and I'm, I'm so thankful for your fellowship and for your love in Christ. It's done me a lot of good. You know, we've, we've remarked on it a couple of times this week. I have, I know Brother Phil has. This peculiar thing that the apostles seemed to be so blind to the things that Jesus was saying them, to them over and over again that were going to happen to him. That, you know, after his arrest and crucifixion and his death, they are, it's as though they are shattered. They don't even believe it when word is brought back to them that Jesus is alive. And it's strange because the Pharisees and Sadducees themselves said, we know that this deceiver, when he was still alive, said he was going to be resurrected. I've puzzled about that a lot. Recently in our Sunday school, we've been going through the Gospels, and I noticed in reading uh, the Gospel of Luke that there's a couple of indications that maybe the reason for their lack of understanding, maybe it's something like what happened with the men on the road to Emmaus, that their eyes were holding that they couldn't see. You remember that, right? When, when and it wasn't until he was they constrained him to stay with them, and he broke the bread, and their eyes were opened in the breaking of bread. The marvelous episode that was. I wonder if it wasn't something like that. And here's a couple of verses that you might want to consider. One of them is Luke chapter 9, verse 43. This is when they've come down from the mount, when there's this epileptic child, not recorded in Luke's account, but in, I think it's in the Gospel of John where Jesus says to the child's father, do you believe all things are possible to him that believes? And the man says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. And the Lord does not say, well, come back when you've got it 100% and then I'll take care of your son. Right? And I find this so reassuring because I know that in me there's a mix of belief and unbelief probably in many of us. But our Lord is compassionate and he healed that child. And we take up at verse 43 of Luke 9, it says, they were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered every one at all things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples, let these sayings sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. Now notice this in verse 45, he says it three times. They understood not this saying, and it was hid from them that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. And again, when you come over to Luke chapter 18, and this one I'll read to you from the RSV, but I'm reading verses 31 to 34. Luke 18, 31. Taking the 12, he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written of the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, 
and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And on the third day he will rise. And note this, verse 34. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hid from them, and they did not grasp what was said. You know, their, their lack of understanding is evident in all sorts of ways. It's, it's evident in their debating over who's going to be the greatest over and over and over, right to the Last Supper. It's evident in Peter taking out his sword and slicing away at the high priest's servant. And it's there when they disbelieved the reports of the resurrection in Luke 24, verse 11. And we sort of marvel at their lack of understanding. And then you stop and you think, wonder what I'm missing. You know, it, what is it that someday my eyes are going to be opened and I'm going to say, wow, how didn't I see that? How could I have been so blind? So we really ought to ask ourselves, where are my blind spots? But on the other hand, we don't want to be discouraged by our lack of understanding. I find it remarkable that in John chapter 2, when Jesus, I probably for the first time, speaks of his murder. John 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So maybe we don't have it all worked out. Maybe our eyes are holding in some sorts of ways. So long as we're gathering information, as long as we're keeping close to the word and trying to understand, maybe we're laying the groundwork for later on that our eyes will be opened. I find that reassuring. Now the title of today's class is taken, probably familiar words to you, from Acts chapter 4. The context is this notable miracle that had happened in Acts chapter 3. Notable miracle, that's the, that's the phrase that the Sanhedrin folks used to describe it. And what it means is an, a miracle that you can't you can't help but notice it. Everybody knew about it. It was a healing of a man who, for 40, who was over 40 years old and who daily was taken to the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. All through Jesus' ministry, that man had been there. In fact, it's not altogether impossible that as a young, crippled person, he might have even been there when Jesus, as a 12-year-old, went up to the temple. Long, long time, everybody knew about him. This pathetic person born without the capacity of walking. Acts 3. Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, 
being the ninth hour, about 3 p.m. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked in alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. And boy, did he get something from them. <laughs> Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. But fantastic miracle, really. He didn't get up and sort of tentatively stagger around, leaning on people for support and have intensive physical therapy for months after that, and eventually he was able to run a mile. No, he was walking and leaping and praising God. And, and the crowd saw it. It was, it was inescapable, this miracle. Verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they knew it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto them. And as the lame man which was healed held Peter and John, all the people ran together unto them in the porch that's called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And Peter, this humble fisherman, uses this opportunity to speak with great boldness. He says that the God of Abraham, verse 13, of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate. You were the ones saying, away with him, give us Barabbas. What shall I do with him? Crucify him. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith, in his name hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I believe that through ignorance he did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. He speaks with great boldness. He goes on to speak about the promises to Abraham. It was interesting this morning with the teens, I, just so gratifying. I said, okay, what can you tell me about the promises to Abraham? Right down the list, they've got them. Familiarity with all the things. And one brother, or a young man, I don't know if he's baptized or not, towards the end of it said, he promised blessings. And that's an interesting observation. Because here at the end of Peter's speech in chapter 3, Peter says, Ye are the children of the prophets, 
and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, and in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. And here's the blessing. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So part of the promises to Abraham, the blessing of being turned aside from our iniquities. We're buried with Christ, the old man put to death, freed from the bondage of sin. Sin doesn't own us. We might sin. We will sin. But sin doesn't own us. We've got a new identity. It's a blessing this new identity is. So it had started at about 3 p.m. And the day had gone on. And there was much preaching. There had been 3,000 previously who had been added to the disciples. Now in chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of them of the men was about 5,000. Quite a crowd had gathered to hear about this miracle, this notable miracle, to hear Peter's preaching. And so what's the reaction? What would you guess the reaction would be of the Sadducees and the priests, the ones who'd been so eager to trip Jesus up and to get him out of the way? Chapter 4, verse 1, they, as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it was now eventide. So they spent the night in jail. And the next morning, they were taken to the Sanhedrin. All the depictions of the Sanhedrin have them seated in a semicircular, semicircular oh, that's a tough word even for a mathematician to say, semicircular arrangement. In the place of honor here in the middle was the high priest, probably Annas, though he wasn't strictly speaking high priest that year. Caiaphas, his his son-in-law was, son was there as well. And all the great men. It was the Feast of Pentecost and people were coming up from all over. All the family of Annas. These influential, wealthy people. The leaders, the, the spiritual and legal authority among the Jewish people. Apparently, the closer you got to sit to the high priest, the more important you were. And as the circle spanned out, the, the less important. And they would have brought Peter and John, just like they had with Jesus, and set them in the midst of this semicircle. Now you think of Peter and John, and they were fishermen. They were Galileans. Remember, Peter, your speech bereath you. You talk like a hayseed. They were unlearned, common people. They weren't the highfalutin. It says, came to pass on the morrow, verse 5, that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander 
and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. Not, known, not much is known for sure about, I don't think anything's known for sure about the John and the Alexander, but the, the John is likely a man called Johanan ben Zakkai. He's a really fascinating character and a, a very respected man of his age, recognized to the present day for his influence on modern Judaism. So there they are, you know, and Peter and John, right there in the midst. Verse 7, when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power, but what, by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said unto them, ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he's made whole, be it known unto you all, all 70 of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. Apparently the man was there as well. This is the stone which was set at naught of the builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now when you consider where the apostles were just weeks earlier, how confused their thinking was, how their eyes were blinded as it were, how that they were at loose ends almost in despair. What a remarkable change has come over them. So verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. That last phrase resonates with me. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. And it seems appropriate for us as we conclude this week of Bible school, in particular considering portraits of the Master, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. May it be that when we go from here, that people will be able to take knowledge of us that we've been with Jesus. I remember Brother Eugene Turner. Does anybody here know Brother Eugene? He was from the East Coast, few of you know him. Lovely old, old brother. And I can't remember what I did last Thursday. Yes, I can. <laughs> it was only two days ago. Week before Thursday, I can't remember. But I can remember 35 years ago when Brother Eugene was an old brother him coming to the Springfield meeting and talking about what Thomas says. It says, show us the Father and it suffices. Is that Thomas? John 14? Why am I having a blank moment here? Of course it was Thomas. I, why, do I, why do I doubt myself? I'm a, I'm, I'm a <laughs> Sorry. Thomas says, no, it's Philip. Oh, my. Thank you for your indulgence. Philip says, show us the Father and it suffices us. 
Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long with time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? And old brother Eugene, the exhortation he left us with, and has been with me all those years, is how about the people that are with us? Can our coworkers, could we say to them, have you been with me so long and you haven't seen the Lord Jesus? We want it to be, we want to commit ourselves to being changed by the presence of our Lord. We've been considering these portraits of the master. We've been in the presence of the Lord in the sense that where two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is among them, which shows us the importance of fellowship and it shows us the importance of the word that we can be with Jesus and we will be changed, will be changed noticeably. So now we head back from this lovely sanctuary of peace and fellowship, back to ordinary life, but refreshed. We go out desiring like Paul to know the Lord Jesus, to see clearly. And so I think it's really fitting for us to take some exhortation from chapters 14 to 18 of the Gospel of John. Actually, this episode starts at John 13 with the Last Supper. And I don't know if there's any other part of Jesus' life, any set of a few hours that is covered in such detail as this is. John chapter 13, we might take up at verse 30. Judas then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now it's all in motion. There's no stopping it now. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. We're feeling a little bit like just a little while we're still together here at Bible school. Imagine how the Lord felt when he had carried these disciples with him for three and a half years. He'd seen their growth. He'd seen the ups and downs. He'd seen them rejoicing when they came back from preaching. And he'd seen their weaknesses and he'd, he'd cared for them. He had just a little while. And I imagine he felt like he had so much that he wanted to say to them. Here's what he said, first of all, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. This is crucial. It ought to govern our actions, and it ought to govern our whole behavior as a community. People ought to be able to know. I love telling the story about our neighbor, John, who one Sunday morning when we were going to meeting, we had folks arriving from Australia, and we said, John, could you give this key to our house because they'll be arriving before we're back? And John said, sure, what do they look like? And we said, we don't know. <laughs> and, and I think that was one thing among others, the power of the word, 
that eventually our neighbor John became our brother John. By this men know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. There can be no compromise on that. So John 14, 15, and 16 are all words of exhortation that Jesus gives his disciples between the Last Supper and Gethsemane. I can't quite work out how it all played out, but at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, Arise, let us go hence. So you might think they left the upper room then. But then when you get to chapter 18, at verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples. Whether they'd gone part of the way and then stopped and carried on some more, I guess it doesn't matter. The point is that between the Last Supper and the arrival at Gethsemane in chapter 18, verse 1, we have these last powerful exhortations, chapter 14, 15, and 16 of John, followed by the Lord's Prayer in John 17. And that's a lot for me to cover in 20 minutes. But there's one word that is that occurs over and over in these verses and that provides a consistent theme to them that I want to talk about. But before I get to that, look at John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Perhaps easier for us to hear these words as relevant to the disciples. Despite their daily experience of him, the words of grace he spoke, the amazing miracles of which he could say, the works bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Despite these, we know how the disciples didn't understand the events that would take place over the next day. And we can understand the words of 14.1. John 14, 1, as having special relevance for the disciples. But then I asked myself whether these words might be an exhortation for us Christadelphians, or for me anyway. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. I suppose it's been easiest for me to believe about Jesus rather than in Jesus. Maybe it's been my experience more than that of others, but maybe not. I suppose that in our desire to avoid evangelical excesses, it might be possible to worship around Jesus rather than through him. We asked ourselves the hypothetical question earlier this week. What difference does it make that Jesus was raised from the dead? Why couldn't he simply have slept like faithful Abraham and been raised at the last day? And the immediate answer we always give is, well, this was the seal of God's approval. And that is an excellent answer. The witness of the disciples, they could say, he's alive, we know he's alive. It's the seal of God's approval. But then you ask yourself, couldn't some other endorsement have have sufficed? What difference would it make if he were asleep in the grave today? And it would make all the difference in the world. Because he ever lives, 
to make intercession for us. He's alive, he's aware. A few years ago, I was giving some classes like these to young people. And I was doing my usual morning thing before giving classes of sitting in my cabin and kind of panicking, thinking, am I going to say, am I going to mess up? Uh, Am I going to be able to reach their hearts? And I had prayed and did what I could do to get ready. And as I picked up my stuff and walked out of the room, I spontaneously just said, all right, Lord Jesus, I'm doing this one for you, or something like that. And, and I thought, I, I just spoke to the Lord Jesus. And it dawned on me that I don't think I ever had. And then I thought, is that, is that okay? And, or, or am I doing something that's sort of contrary to, to what I ought to be doing? It got me thinking, and you know, you get one of these things on your mind, and you start reading the scriptures, and things start jumping out at you. You notice that Paul sure didn't have any embarrassment about speaking to the Lord Jesus in his writings, nor did Stephen when they were pelting him with stones in that vicious murder. And it's amazing to me, maybe I've said this already, but I'll say it again. We always hear of Jesus seated at the right hand. And this time, he sees heaven opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then I I came across an essay written by Brother Roberts. In fact, I have have handouts of this. if, yeah, if you could distribute these. Um, I've got some of it on the overhead projector, and I will, I'll read it along. This was written by Brother Roberts as editor of the Christadelphian in 1873. If you've got access to any of those old facsimile versions of the Christadelphian, they're really good reading. Um, particularly this sort of thing, the, the, the questions and answers. Somebody wrote in and said, is Jesus an object of worship? So the quote I'm going to read is from the Christadelphian, May 1st, 1873, page 234 for that matter. The blind man at the temple cured by Christ, worshipped him. It's not up there yet, honey. (laughs) You know this, I don't know if you brothers in your meetings, in the Baltimore meeting, when you preside, if you've got 30, 40 other presiders in the audience, it's just great. You you leave out something and you you get straightened out. (laughs) I should let the... uh, the handouts get distributed. I hope we have enough to go around. If, if we don't, you don't get one, I can, I can certainly uh, send you one. All right, let me, let me read the, the first paragraph of this I don't have on the screen. So this is his response to the question, is Jesus an object of worship? The blind man at the temple, cured by Christ, worshiped him, John 9, 38. And Jesus did not say, as Peter said to Cornelius when Cornelius fell down at his feet and worshipped him, 
stand up. I myself also am a man. His disciples worshipped him, Matthew 28. So did the women who met him after his resurrection, Matthew 27, 9. So also a ruler came and worshipped him. I'll leave out the references. A leper did the same. They that were with him in the ship worshipped him. The angels were commanded to worship him, Hebrews 1, verse 6. The saints in glory are represented as worshiping him, saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wisdom and riches and honor and glory and blessing. Now I've got it on the overhead. Should have it on the overhead. Oh my, come on, silly thing. I'm going to have to step down then. Boy, this thing's not cooperating with me. All right. Now, though the Father is the highest object of reverence, is not Jesus an object of reverence also? Yes, verily. For God hath given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess. To him will we sing the song of praise and make the completest obeisance in the day of his glory. Jesus did not teach the disciples to make their supreme petitions to him, but to the Father through him. Ye shall pray the Father in my name. And so our practice, brothers and sisters in our ecclesias, of addressing our prayers to God through Christ is what Jesus taught us. That's what we ought to do. Yet, Brother Robert says, this need not exclude such prayer and thanks subordinately permissible to him as are illustrated in Lord Jesus, come quickly. Lord, save me. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord. If Jesus were on earth, and we were to meet him, would we not do homage and make request of his favor? Undoubtedly. Imagine if the Lord were to walk in here right now. Well, he lives, and though we see him not, he sees us and has all power, for it is given to him and symbolized in the seven horns and seven eyes of the slain lamb. He is able to succor those who are tempted. And shall we not make request? This does not conceal the fact that the head of Christ is God and that out of him are all things. It's a matter of balance. And I guess I wonder in my own self, and I'll present it for your own thought, is it possible that we've got the balance off a little bit? There's a brother in our meeting back east who gives a wonderful prayer. And when he gives a prayer for the emblems on a Sunday morning, you can count on it that at some point in the prayer, he'll pause and say, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you went through on our behalf. Hear what Brother Robert says. There's a place for every element of truth. 
The difficulty is sometimes to find it. And the misfortune often finds illustration in one man with one element of truth fighting another man who holds another element, both equally making havoc of that which properly blended is harmony itself. I've seen that in controversy, and I imagine you all have too. If we could only acknowledge that our brother is standing up for a principle, a different principle, if we could only blend them together. There's a place for every element of truth. Well, I thought you might find that helpful. I read that and I say, wow. I, I, I say amen to it as well. So let's strive to have it firmly in our minds that our Lord is alive, that he's aware, and he's active in our lives. He bids us to the peace that comes from knowing him. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Well, I said there was a one-word theme that goes through these final exhortations of our Lord Jesus. And, and the word is abide. John 14, verse 2, the, the King James says, in my Father's house are many mansions. And, uh, you know, that's a favorite one for the heaven-going folks. Barnes notes on the New Testament says this. It's commonly understood as affirming that in heaven there's ample room to receive all who will come, that therefore the disciples might be sure that they would not be excluded. And it's funny how a lot of the modern translations have uh, retained the mansions thing for some reason here, when in fact the word is abode. It's the same word as in verse 23 of John chapter 14. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. I'm a statistician and I have scrupulously refrained from statistics this week, but sometimes it sort of wells up in you. Abode is the noun form of the verb abide. Over half of the occurrences of the word abide in the New Testament are in John's Gospel and his epistles. In fact, there's about eight of them in chapter 15, verses one to nine. I am the true vine, my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he's cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, 
and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Abide ye in my love. We shouldn't be embarrassed to think about and desire Christ in us. Indeed, Paul says that we're to examine ourselves, whether we are in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. That's 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. He speaks in Colossians about the wonderful mystery, the secret that's been hidden for ages and generations, but now is made manifest to the saints. A glorious mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Paul prays in his famous prayer of Ephesians 3, 14 to 19, with bended knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he would grant us according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened by might, by, with might, by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. So I'd like to end our class and this session and indeed our Bible school with the words that Jesus prays on his way to Gethsemane. And it's so remarkable under the circumstances he found himself that all his prayer was for the well-being of, his, of the 12, of the 11 that were there and of those that would believe through their word. He prays in John 17, verse 21, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Could we just conclude with a hymn? Two hymns, maybe. First one for this class, but then one to make me weep. Hymn 209. Lord Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. Be thou forever near me, my master and my friend. 
I shall not fear the battle if thou art by my side, nor wander from the pathway if thou wilt be my guide. Hymn 209. You guys can also do. I'd like to thank Brother Bill 
and Sister Carol for coming out, and uh, Brother Bill for all your preparation and work in uh, teaching us and the teens as well.